Hey everyone, this is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Our guest today is Army veteran Fernando Arroyo. Fernando grew up in Bell Gardens, California, where he witnessed gang violence at a young age. Since a kid, he'd been interested in joining the military, but the 9-11 attack on America solidified it. Fernando enlisted into the Army on a paratrooper contract. He's conducted multiple combat deployments and speaks on the difficulty of transition after his experience in the military. Fernando has also written a book called the shadow of death detailing his experience in Fallujah and battling for his soul upon transitioning if you enjoy this episode go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans the bigger the community the bigger the impact if you'd like to contribute your story to urban valor and know anyone else who may reach out to us on instagram at urban valor tv or you can email us at team at urban enjoy the show so my name is fernando arroyo and I served in the U.S. Army from 2002, August of 2002, till I got out February of 2008. What rank did you get out? Uh, Sergeant E5. Right on. Um, talk to me about where you're from and what your childhood upbringing was like. Yeah, my childhood, I grew up in the city of Bell Gardens by East L.A. So it's a small city. There was a lot of gangs. Um, my parents came here from Mexico. So I lived in a one-bedroom house, family of four. And then uh, I remember my uncle, he got out of prison because he uh, got in a fight. He kicked a L.A. County Sheriff's deputy in the chest because he was drinking in public. And the sheriffs were like, you can't do that. So he just thought, I don't know, he was drunk or whatever. So when he moved in for a few years, it was uh, five of us in a one-bedroom house. And... Um, Growing up, there was a lot of gangs, and I remember a lot of my friends that I grew up with in you know, elementary school, they would grow up, they joined gangs, or they became taggers, what later became known as tag bangers from different gangs. And uh, so I had an exciting childhood, because there was like police chases, like I remember as a kid watching cartoons on TV, and then all of a sudden it's like, Fox News, you know, breaking news, there's a high-speed chase or whatever, and like, oh, the car's exiting uh, the 710 freeway exiting Florence, and I'm like down the street from there. And we're like, oh, and like all the kids were running down the street, and we're cheering on this guy. He's like in a gangbanger, stolen vehicle. The cops are chasing him, and then the helicopter's like, get inside, you're in danger. And we're like, woo, you know, uh, <laughs> just stuff like that. And some of my friends were murdered. I remember um, like drive-by shootings. I remember uh, just witnessing drug use, heroin, a lot of crack, um, a lot of homeless. There was, uh, I don't know, the first time I saw somebody die, there was a drive-by shooting down the street. And, uh, and I remember just hearing gunshots. And like I ever knew as a kid like what to do. You get down, you wait for the shooting to stop and then the car you know took off and then i remember me and my brother we got up and we ran down the street to go see what happened and then there was this guy bleeding on the sidewalk on the street and he was internally bleeding and he kept getting swollen and the paramedics were doing cpr and then i just knew he died because they like stopped and then just put a white like blanket a white sheet over him on the street and then they the cops like put the yellow tape up and they're like all right everybody like unless you saw something like leave and so that was like, oh, he's dead. And that was my friend Jose's cousin. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I witnessed a lot of stuff like that, a lot of gang activity and things. I think what helped me uh, stay out of gangs was 
One was like, I grew up going to church. My mom is the one that took me to church. So I grew up Christian going to church. And then the other thing was that I had my dad. So my parents were still married to this day. And I remember my dad told me, he's like, like my friends would make fun of me when I was a kid. It's 9 p.m. It's like 9 p.m. Get inside the house, you know. And then my friends were like, oh, that's it. You got to go inside and making fun. And then my dad's like, you see those kids? You see your friends? He's like, they don't have a dad. He's like, you see, like, they're, they're not going to go places. I'm like, okay. And he was right. But yeah. Did, yeah. did you ever, uh, did your friends ever uh, pressure you uh, on joining a gang? Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like hard pressure. I knew them since we were friends, you know, little kids and they would, you know, join gangs and they're like, oh, come on, you should like hang out with us. Or, you know, I would smoke weed. I would hang around. I was like a hang around. But they're like, oh, what's up? Like, when, when are we going to jump you in? And I'm just like, nah, uh, nah, I don't want to join the gang. Like, oh, you're a little bitch or whatever they would say. And, you know, we're getting high. We're drinking. The cops are like, you know, searching us and everything else. I've never been arrested. I've just been like in handcuffs, like on my knees, you know, on the street. Cops searching me. My friends got arrested. I think what happened was like once I came, like became a freshman in high school, a lot of my friends, um, they got kicked out of school or they got locked up, mm. like attempted murder or whatever else. And they were just like in, a lot of them went to boot camps, like youth boot camps. So then I ended up finding a new group of friends. They weren't the best, but they weren't gangbanging. So they were still smoking weed and ditching school and stuff. But that's what kept me from going down the path of joining a gang. Mm. Yeah. I was 17 years old and I just started my, um, I was 17 years old and I just started my senior year at Bell Gardens High School. And I remember on September 11, um, there were no lectures. Like I went to school, my first class, my buddy Max told me, did you hear what happened in New York? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, there was a bomb. A bomb exploded in the World Trade Center. I was like, okay. I didn't think anything of it. Then my next class, the bell rang. I went to my second period class. And then all the students were still there. And some were crying. And they were watching a TV in front of the classroom. So then I walked in class. And I looked at the TV. And then I saw the tower. One of the towers was on fire. And then I saw smoke. And then I saw a second airplane hit the other tower. And then I saw people jumping out through the smoke and committing suicide on live TV. And then they said, America's under attack. And I was like, this is my time. Like I wanted to join as a kid and I'm going to join. Once I became a senior in high school, like I was getting like all this recruitment mail from different branches because they're allowed to do that. It's like, Hey, you're 17. My parents could sign and, and I could join. And I remember seeing this, um, this postcard type recruitment thing it was like a postcard and it was these dudes in like camo on a zodiac boat going down a river but their gear looked like i haven't seen it before it was like they had m16s but they were smaller m16s which were m4s i didn't know at the time and they had like different gadgets you know like scopes and stuff and i'm like what the hell is this like i never saw a saw uh, m249 saw before and it was a small one with a scope on it and i'm like oh, like this has to be Marines because it's like they're on the water on a boat. And then when I turned it, it said, do you have what it takes to be an airborne ranger? And then it talked about Army Ranger School. I'm like, oh, so I researched that and I thought, I want to go to Ranger School. So the Army has Ranger School. Then I um, heard about being a paratrooper. Like these guys, 
they're infantry, but they train a parachute out of airplanes. And then I think at the time is when uh, Band of Brothers came out. Mm. And it was like the World War II paratroopers, 101st Airborne, 82nd Airborne. I was like, oh, I want to be in the 82nd Airborne. So I went to the recruiter and he's like, what do you want to do in the army? And I was like, I want to be a paratrooper. And like, they all started laughing. And they're like, nah, you don't want to do that. That's stupid, man. Like, you don't want to do that. I was like, why not? They're like, why do you want to jump out of an airplane? I usually wait till it lands to get out. Like, it's stupid. Why parachute out of a plane? Like, you don't need to do that. I was like, nah, man, like, that's badass. I want to jump in. They're like, dude, you'll be like the first one in. I'm like, great. I want to be the first one in. I want to jump out of planes. And he's like, let me ask you something. Have you ever been on an airplane? And I grew up poor, you know, I was like, no, I've never been on a plane. And he's like, oh, no. It's like, dude, you don't want to do that. He goes, he slides me a paper. He's like, we need cooks. The army needs cooks. He's like, they have a $20,000 sign up bonus. If you want to be a cook in the army, he's like, have you ever had $20,000? I was like, no, I've never had $20,000. He's like, dude, you sign right here. We can get you $20,000. You can be a cook in the army. Nah, I said, I want to jump out of planes and fight. And they, at this point, they're like, wow, like this is stupid. Like they told me for the first time in history, a recruiter was honest. He was like, dude, like you, you know, don't come to me and say my recruiter lied and all this crap. He's like, it's going to suck. You're going to jump out of planes. It's not fun. It's not skydiving. And you're going to be in the rain and the mud and the snow. Like you're a grunt. It's going to be bad. Sign me up. All right. Four years. Airborne infantry contract, 82nd Airborne, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So my first time on an airplane, I graduated June of 2002 from high school. And then August 20th, 2002, I, I left for uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. So my first time on an airplane was getting on a plane to LAX to fly to Georgia to learn how to be a grunt and jump out of planes. And I remember being on the airplane and... You know, the pilots check the wings and, you know, they do their little checks, pre-flight stuff. Yeah. And I, I didn't know. And I was scared. It was just like, stuff is moving around. I'm like, what's going on? Like, we haven't even taken off. And I was like, oh, no, like, I messed up. And then the plane's taking off and it's shaky. And I remember when it took off, like, L.A. just, like, disappeared. And I was like, I can't jump out of this. Like, the recruiter was right. I started praying to God. I was like, God, help me, help me. So I grew up going to church and I'm a Christian. And so I prayed a lot. I was like, oh, did I just made, make the worst decision of my life? Because I can't jump out of planes. Like, you know, I was scared. But I made it to Fort Benning, Georgia. And hope Fort Benning, Georgia is home of the infantry. In the Army, if you're infantry, you go through what's called one station unit training. So from, from boot camp, basic training to infantry school, it's the same drill sergeants. They're all infantry and they like, they groom you from the beginning to the end, like from the beginning to like infantry school, advanced tactics, room clearing, everything, you know? And so I was there for, I was like 14 weeks and, uh, I don't know, boot camp stories. I remember, I remember first, like, my first time waking up um, in boot camp, it was like the fire alarms went off and it's just these bright white lights flashing. 
And like someone, I, one of the drill sergeants just like, I was on the top bunk and he pushed me off and I fell. Like it hurt. I fell on my right shoulder, like boom, but the adrenaline's going because it's like the alarm's going off. And then they're like, they have like the aluminum trash cans and they're just throwing them, making noise, banging them. They're like, you're going to fucking die. You're going to die. And we're like, crap. And they told us the day before, like, this is what you do in case of a fire. Like it was a fire drill. You, you know, all this, grab the fire extinguishers, you go to the back. This is where you assemble to get accounted for. And it was just like, boom, instant, like hit the ground running. And um, I put on my shoes and I'm running. Trash cans are flying and people are falling over each other. And then it was just like, a, it felt like forever, but it was just a smoke session. Like just push-ups, uh, flutter kicks, burpees, or they call them like eight count bodybuilders. Yeah. Um, it seemed like nonstop. I, you know, it's like, and it was summer, it was August. So Georgia was hot and humid. I wasn't used to that, you know, being from California, just like, it's like being in a sauna and then you can't stop sweating. You just stay wet and you just keep, and then we're rolling, roll left, roll right in the sand. And just, I remember doing that a lot, a lot yeah. of roll left, roll right. So what was it like, um, jumping out of that? playing the first time for you yeah airborne school was three weeks and it's just down the it's not far like it's all fort benning so i jumped five times day and night the first time i jumped everybody was scared we're like packing into the back like sardines in a c-130 uh aircraft i remember the plane landed and i'm already like rigged up i've been inspected helmet on uh reserve parachute and parachute in my back no combat gear it was my first jump it's what's called a hollywood jump you know it's just as easy as it gets when you're airborne. But it was hard because it was my first time. The plane lands, the ramp goes down, we walk in the back, I could smell the exhaust. And then uh, the ramp closed. And like, I remember when the ramp closed, I was like, when this plane lands, I'm not gonna be in it. And then it takes off. And then the commands start, 20 minutes. And then you yell it out, 20 minutes, then 10 minutes. And then uh, outboard personnel stand up. Inboard personnel, stand up, then hook up. You have a, a static line. I hooked it up to a cable in the airplane that I'm gonna hand off to the jump master and the safety before I just chuck myself out of the side door. Then the doors open, the wind's blowing, and I'm just like heart racing, and I'm like, can I do this? Can I do this as I'm holding the static line? And then they're like, one minute, 30 seconds, and then stand by, and then the first guy hands off his line, and he's just standing at the door looking out and just looking straight ahead. And then there's a red light and a green light on the door. And then it turns green and they're like, slap him in the ass. Green light, go. And then it's just like one after another. Boom, boom, boom. So all I did was look at the feet of the guy in front of me and just walk as he walked. And then he disappeared. I didn't want to see it. It's just like a vacuum. And then I just, like I locked eyes with the safety. He grabbed my static line. I see the sky and the trees, and then I just threw myself out. I think I closed my eyes. You put your feet and knees together, hand on the reserve, and I have eyes closed, and then it's 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, and you should feel the tug of the parachute, mm. and I did. If you don't, you gotta pull your reserve. So I felt the parachute open, I opened my eyes, it's open, it's like check canopy, look around, and it's just like, it's really peaceful. 
coming down slow. It's like, oh, and then you hit the ground like a sack of crap. It was terrible. <laughs> My knees hurt to this day from all the jumps. Uh, so I was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And then that was like an eye-opening experience to be there with like seasoned paratroopers. And then about like, I think it was like two months when I arrived to my unit, I was voluntold to go try out for a recon team. Uh, I was in team three of the 1st Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, um, Scout Platoon. Things started getting worse in Iraq real fast. The insurgency started kicking up and then, um, and then we got the call. It was now our turn, we're DRF-1, we're pack bags packed, ready to go. And we get the call like, hey, Let's go, you gotta go to Iraq. And then we got told that we're going to the city of Fallujah, that it was out of control and um, it was like a, an insurgency like hotspot. And it was a part of the Sunni triangle, the triangle of death. So where Fallujah was, it's like, like a triangle. There's like, I don't know what cities there were. It's like Baghdad, Fallujah, and like some other, I don't remember, um, but it was bad. So I remember going to Fallujah and then uh, that's when I started seeing action for real. Like um, my first time in combat, I remember my first mission in Fallujah. My buddies had already gone into the city that week. It was like my first week of being there and they were just taking contact. They would go out on night missions, get in gunfights. That's when we started hearing about roadside bombs and stuff, IEDs. And um, I was like, dude, like when is it going to be my turn, you know? We were getting rocket and mortar attacked in the base, but it was finally like my turn to go into the city. And uh, I remember sitting in back of a cargo Humvee with night vision inside the base and we're like lined up in convoy formation. And I remember we're all looking at the city of Fallujah from what later would be called Camp Fallujah, the Marines would rename it. Um, and I could see tracer rounds flying into the sky. And we had these army intel guys intercepting radio and telephone uh, conversations in Arabic and then the interpreter said that the insurgents are shooting in the air and they're challenging us to a fight and they're saying that when the Americans come into the city we're going to kill them. So then uh, we had some 10th Mountain guys there. We were attached to 10th Mountain for this mission because I was in a recon sniper team and um, Captain Kirkpatrick, he was the company commander of this company from the 10th Mountain and he's like, we'll be right there. When the insurgents said, oh, we're going to kill the Americans. He's like, we'll be right there. And then Chaplain Kramer, oh no, not Chaplain, Chaplain Knight. He was a former operator with the tier one unit, became a chaplain. And he gathered us and he said, let's pray. And his prayer was, you know, God guide our bullets to hit the skulls of these savages and send them to the depths of hell in your name. Amen. Mount up <laughs> like, all right, let's go lock and load. And I'm like, my heart's racing. I had just turned 19. And we're driving towards the city of Fallujah. The bullets are flying in the sky. And then we hit a dirt road on the side of the city and then the bullets stopped. So we knew we were being watched. It's like, okay, all of a sudden the city's quiet. We're driving up and down the streets of Fallujah looking for a fight, doing like um, search and destroy. And uh, it was a ghost town. It was like, we're going up and down the streets. Like, where are these guys? They were shooting in the air. Like we're right here, you know? So then there was nothing. So we drive in the outskirts. I think it's the Euphrates rivers out there, the Euphrates river. And there's tall, it's like by Euphrates river, it's like tall grass, swampy area. And uh, I remember hearing two explosions and I, I felt the blast in my chest, just boom, boom. And I saw two glowing uh, red projectiles fly over 
uh, my Humvee, like five feet over, and it was two RPGs, two rocket-propelled grenades. It was an ambush. And then I see red and green tracer rounds flying my way. I have night vision on, so like, I had PVS-14, so like over my right eye, I have the night vision, but so I could see green through one eye and then glowing red through the other. Oof. And I'm just like, crap. And I felt the Humvee like move because we're trying to get out of the kill zone, right? We're in the ambush site, the kill zone. And it was like an out-of-body experience. I remember I had my uh, Pac-4 infrared laser and I could see it through my night vision and I'm just returning fire to the muzzle flash. And then uh, to my right was Corporal McGuire, my team leader. And he started shooting his 203 grenade launcher. And then um, I remember he was loading his 203 and he yelled, he's like, he like nudged me. He's like, hey, there's a guy running. And I see this guy running, like he's trying to get a better position. He has an AK and he's trying to get a better position to shoot as we're like trying to get out of there. And I remember just like aiming at him as we're moving and I put like, so when we loaded our magazines, the first five rounds, we put tracer rounds just to know when we're running out. So when you shoot, you know, like one, two, three, four, five, like, you know, like tr tracer rounds, they glow red, 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 red. Oh, I'm about to run out. So it was the last rounds in my mag. And I remember seeing those tracer rounds go through him like boom, boom, boom. Like they're, they're like flying, you know, they would go through him and disappear in the tall grass. And it was like so fast. I'm just like, pop, 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 pop. And then it's like, click. I said, changing mags. And I dropped the mag as the Humvee is moving. And then I put a fresh mag. I uh, let the bolt go forward. And then when I put up my weapon again, cease fire. Like it was over. So that was the first time I shot someone. And I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel like, oh my God, I just shot someone. It was, like I said, it's like an out-of-body experience. The training kicks in. It wasn't until later that night. We went to like a, it was a RON site, a rest overnight site. And I just remember sitting there and thinking, did I just kill the guy? Because that night after that, that ambush, we turned around and went back to the same spot, like looking for more. And there was blood. There were no bodies. Like they, they took their dead. Because the Muslims, they have like 24 hours before, like when you die, if you're Muslim, they want to wrap you up and do this whole cleansing thing or else you don't go to heaven or something like that. So they would collect their dead. But there was just blood and like weapons and bullet shells and stuff. And I remember thinking like, damn, I just shot somebody. Like I put bullets in a dude. And I didn't, I didn't feel guilt about that. But with the thing that like I remember thinking about was it wasn't hard. They were hitting supply routes really hard, like trying to keep us from getting food and water. And we would go out into the desert where there was like a more frequent uh, roadside bombs. And we'd be out there at night and set up uh, sniper teams and just watch the road. And then they would work in like three man teams. So a car rolls up, the driver gets out, looks around opens the trunk, pulls out a shovel, starts digging, puts the shovel in the car, you know, the trunk closes it. The next guy shows up, drops off the bomb, leaves. The last guy rolls up, um, puts the detonator, usually by cell phone. They'd like attach it and then cover it up and then wait for troops, you know? So I remember like this guy, he like dug the hole and ROE, rules of engagement said, like if you're past curfew, you're on the side of the road and you're digging a hole, we can kill you. So 
This guy puts a shovel back in his trunk after digging a hole, sits down. I put my pack for infrared laser, point it through the back windshield to the back seat, and I just pop off one round. And then I just remember like seeing the round go. Well, I saw the, I didn't see the bullet. It wasn't a tracer, but like the, the wind, the back window, like just all like cracked. And then I saw the guy slump and then he like put his car in drive, drive and drove off. And like, we did that several times. And then I remember we lost our first guy, Staff Sergeant Johnson, um, a roadside bomb. They, the enemy had an, uh, uh, I think it was like a 105 howitzer round or whatever they use, some Russian round. Um, and two propane tanks like hidden on the side of the road. It blew up, shrapnel hit Sergeant Johnson, burned him. Like it was, it was, uh, you know, he, he was our, our first and only KIA that deployment. And we had like 99 wounded. We had one KIA. And when I heard about his death, um, I'm like, dude, like, am I going to die? So at the age of 19, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, man, like there's a lot of death. Um, is God good? Is, is God even here? Does he care about me? And then I was also thinking, is this as far as I'm going to live at 19 years old? Is this going to be the end of my life? Like, am I going to die out here in this crap city of Fallujah? Is this it? You know, then when I came back, that's when I started like experiencing things. Like I'd wake up at night looking for my weapon. Um, and it was put away. It was in the arms room. I didn't have it anymore, but I like slept with it. I had it all the time that I was so used to it. If someone slammed the door, I'd jump on the ground. I thought it was an IED. Um, just things like that, that I thought were, I kind of shook it off, but I didn't realize like a lot of my friends were going through the same thing, um, having weird dreams and stuff, but none of us talked about it. I remember we had like a safety brief, like, Hey, you're going to get back. Some of you had kids while you were here and you haven't met them yet. Um, don't get mad when your baby pushes you away. Cause the, your baby doesn't know you, you, you know, you're a new face. You smell different. Um, they're like, don't drink and drive. Don't beat your wife. Don't beat your dog, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. And then they asked, do you want to talk to a psychologist? No. Do you want to talk to a chaplain? No. Okay. Sign here. And then we just returned to base. And then it was a lot of self-destructive behavior, getting drunk. We're back partying, getting in fights on the streets in, in the city of Fayetteville. We called it Vietnam. <laughs> just going like to different bars and clubs and it seemed normal because we all went through it. And if everyone around you is doing it, then it's just what we do. It's a culture. And what I didn't realize looking back now, it's like all of us had PTSD. I mean, we had platoons where like everyone in the platoon had a purple heart. It was just wow. everybody. Yeah. Just so many purple hearts and uh, a lot of combat experience, a lot of trauma too, but we didn't, we didn't know, know anything about it, but we were in the barracks and we heard rumors that, that um, supposedly the Army Tier 1 unit had pinpointed Bin Laden and we were going to get a call to go and like help take him out and stuff in Afghanistan. So there was like rumors. That's always like that. There's rumors. And it turns out it was we went for the first elections in Afghanistan mm -hmm. to provide extra security. And I remember we got the call, Red Corvette, and everybody's like getting out of their barracks room and we're all drinking. It was like, Red Corvette, hell yeah, we're going to war. Like chugging beer, getting ready, listening to rock music, you know. I did smoke weed in Afghanistan. Really? I, yeah, I did. You know, I'll say that here. It's not, 
I wrote a book. It's not in the book. <laughs> it got taken out. How'd that come about? So I wasn't on this mission because, again, I was a part of a three-man sniper team. And um, I remember, uh, I think it was second platoon, first, first and second platoon Bravo company of my unit were there. And I think it was second platoon went on a mission and they, they didn't have room for me. So the, my buddy, uh, Sergeant Mish and Kyle, Kyle Amsbury, um, they went on this mission. They're like, Hey, just stay back. It's cool. So they came back at like sunset and then Mish came over and he's like, Hey, come here, Arroyo, come here. I'm like, what? He opens up his, his, we called it an assault bag. It's just like a tactical backpack. He opened it up and he starts kind of like waffing it at me. And I'm like, smells like weed. He's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, don't say that out loud. So what happened is they went out on this mission. They found this crop of weed, this huge field. So they had to burn it. Like that's what they were doing. But before they burned it, a few guys went up to the plants and just kind of hugged the, he opened up his body armor, hugged this weed tree. He said it was taller than him, hugged it, ripped the bottom with his knife and just stuffed it in his body armor. And then he like put it in his assault bag and then uh, he broke it down and then he had it in a Ziploc bag and then he had to dry it. So on the perimeter of this small outpost, um, he put it on the HESCO baskets on the sea wire to get sun. And then he says, he went to the captain and he goes, hey, uh, you know, we're here to make sure that when the people vote, it's safe, right? We're here for security. Why don't we put a sniper team on this rooftop in this town of Zermatt and they're going to vote in this little, this little building. We can watch it, make sure the enemy doesn't booby trap it. And the captain's like, that's a great dude. That's a great idea. Of course. So we would walk out the wire at night, just walk into the town, lock and low, night vision, just walk right out, call it up on the radio. Like, you know, um, Bravo six. This is Hawk. My call sign was Hawk three Romeo, uh, three packs leaving the wire time. Now copy. We'd walk out. We went to this abandoned building. It was a three-story building. We got to the rooftop and we'd watch. We had night vision. We had thermal scopes. We had all this, you know, gear, sniper rifles. And we'd look and there was, it, there was nothing happening. There's like stray dogs running around and stuff. Okay. So then Mish pulled out a Coke can, emptied it out, bent it, put holes in it. And I'm just sitting there like, dude, is my squad leader really going to smoke this? And yep. Puts the weed on it. And then he passes it to Kyle. And then I'm like looking at Kyle and I'm wondering like, is he going to say no? Kyle smoked it. And then it's like, pass it to me. And I'm like, well, I'm 19 years old. This is my second time in combat. I might die. Like I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Afghanistan. Like, so I smoked. And I think I smoked like three times that deployment and it was a trip. Like being on a, on a sniper team, on a rooftop, outside the wire with thermals and night vision and high. And I was just like, oh, like, dude, like the thermals black and white. And I'm watching a pack of dogs attacking a, a donkey and the donkey's kicking them. And I'm just like, whoa, like just out of my mind, like high. And I'm like, dude. It didn't make you like paranoid or nothing? It did. I remember like any sound, I was like, oh, like the enemy's like, they're coming up the stairs, bro. You know, this one mission, we were on the side of a mountain watching. Um, we had found an IED earlier that day and blew it up. 
And the enemy, they were lazy. They would use the same craters. So we came back at night and we're watching this crater from the side of a mountain. It's like this like cinder block house that on the side of a, a mountain that it looked like a bomb hit it. Like it was like, there's no roof, you know, like barely, it's barely giving us any, any cover, but it's night and it's Afghanistan. So it's really dark. And then we smoked again. And I just remember being paranoid, like looking up the mountain and thinking if, if the enemy comes over this mountain, like we're fighting an, up, uh, an, an uphill battle and I'm high, I'm going to die. And luckily nothing like that happened to us. <laughs> so that deployment went, it was pretty uneventful. A few hits, a few incoming rockets and mortars. And then, uh, then we came back. So between Afghanistan and my last deployment is when I went to ranger school. Went to Florida for the jungle phase, passed, came back, and then I was supposed to get out of the army August of 2006. And then I got a letter in the mail that said, attention to orders, you are stop loss. So the army said, we can't afford to lose you because we were deploying again to Beji, Iraq. And I was going to get out before that. But they said, no, you're not. Now you're going to stay. And August of 2006, I was supposed to be out. And instead, I was in Kuwait on my way to Iraq. And I thought in the back of my mind, I said, I'm going to die. Like, this is going to be my last deployment. I'm going to die. Like, how is it that I'm supposed to get out? And this is like unheard of. Like, I'm, I have to stay and I have to go to war. And they were saying it was going to be a year deployment, that it was the surge. So... It was called the surge. Uh, General Petraeus, the commander of forces in Iraq, he um, he wrote the book on counterinsurgency, and he said, "We have the enemy running in Iraq. We need to send more troops, surround them, and destroy them." So they couldn't afford to lose any troops, and that was me. I was part of that. So I remember getting stop loss, getting the orders in the mail. I was mad. My girlfriend left me. The scout platoon kicked me out. I just wanted to get out and, and move on with my life. And the army was like, no. And that right there, I had this anger towards the army. And then I also, again, I grew up going to church and I questioned God's goodness in combat after everything I saw. And then now that I was stop loss, I was just blaming God. I was like, oh, you know, God's going to kill me in Iraq. This is where I'm going to die. And like, I was just... um I was just, I just, I wanted someone to point the finger at and say, this is your fault because I was angry. So I just blamed God. And then I remember August, August 21st, 2006, I was supposed to be a civilian. And instead I was in this hot ass tent in Kuwait. We had AC, but I mean, Kuwait gets hot. Like by 5 a.m. it's already a hundred degrees, a hundred degrees. Yeah. And then, uh, I remember they're like, okay, put on your combat gear and like, just walk around to get acclimated to the weather. And I'm just sweating in full combat gear. Like, dude, this is stupid, man. Like I, everything that I had to do, I was just mad because I shouldn't have been, you know, I shouldn't be here. I thought. And, um, uh, I remember, uh, we, we went to, uh, to Beji, Iraq, and then I flew into, um, forward operating base Summerall and the 101st airborne was there. And we were relieving them. We were taking over. And I remember the helicopter landed and I get out. And then the first thing I see is the battalion headquarters. And then I see like these tall concrete pillars with the names of everyone who was killed in action from that base. 
And there was like three pillars covered in names. And I was like, oh, people are going to die. I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. This is my third. You could only go to war so many times before finally, like I had not been shot. I had not been, no, no IED ever hit me. Like people around me had cuts in their faces, shrapnel in their, in their helmets and body armor, not a scratch on me, you know? And I thought, okay, this is the, the third time's a charm. The enemy's going to get me. Um, look at all these names on these pillars. I'm going to die. And I remember first Sergeant Dobbs, my first Sergeant, we were looking at these pillars and he, he said it out loud. He's like, this is going to be a tough one. And he was right. It turned out to be not a year deployment, but a 15 month deployment. Mm. And then, you know, dude started dying and, you know, today is Memorial day. And I spoke earlier somewhere else. And so I wore the, all the, the brave, and these aren't even all my friends who were killed in action, but you know, just my buddies who were killed on that deployment. And there's more, I, I would have it up, you know, my, my, my arm, but I don't have, I haven't made the other KA bracelets. And one, um, one band is for one individual. One band is, yeah. Each band is for each individual. And it's just their, their name, their rank, and then the date that they were killed in action and, and where. And, um, yeah, I remember that deployment, um, 15 months and we're doing counter ID, counter insurgency. We're going out at night, kicking indoors. Um, we had different ways of like, of intercepting enemy positions where, um, enemy locations, we were intercepting cell phones and things like that. And, um, you know, I've, I've never shot a person in a house. I've cleared so many houses. Usually when you go to a house, I remember, um, we usually like drive up in our Humvees wearing night vision and then get out quietly and then go like, if there's like a wall, there's a gate. If the gate's locked, I would like jump the wall, open the gate from the inside, let everybody in and then, um, stack in front of the, the house. And then the breacher goes up. Usually the doors unlocked, like the Iraqis just had unlocked doors. Go in, we flow through the house, um, clearing room to room. There's usually a room where like the women and children are sleeping. And then in the summertime, the men would sleep on the rooftop. So we clear the house, make our way to the rooftop. Oh, look, there's the guy who's, a, you know, we went after bomb makers, after um, insurgents of, you know, doing different things, different bad things. And uh, I would... It was crazy to see them. They're asleep. I had an Intel packet. I had pictures of them that I saw their name, what they were, why we were going after them. And then to like go in their house at night and to see them and be like, that's the guy. This is the guy we're after. And then he's asleep and he doesn't know I'm right here. Like I could take his life. And I would put in the, like one zip tie on his wrist, zip tie it and slowly turn him over. And he's like just snoring you know, probably dreaming that he's being flipped in. I don't know what the hell he's dreaming about. And then put the other one in zip, nice and tight. And then wake up motherfucker. And then he'd wake up like, Oh, their hands tied, turn the lights on. And then it's like, America's here, you know, night vision weapons with uh, lasers and surefire tactical lights and American patches and all that. So we did that. But then we started losing dudes. Um, the guys we lost were to um, improvised explosive devices 
And then uh, there was a sniper. I heard there's a sniper that um, Al-Qaeda hired, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, he was uh, from Chechnya. And so there were these mercenary dudes. And some of my friends were killed by, I, I, I believe it was one particular sniper. I don't know his name or anything. Uh, he was caught towards the end of my deployment. Uh, either the Army Tier 1 unit caught him or the Ranger Regiment caught him. But we were after him. And um, we would try to intercept his cell phone. And like he would turn it off. Like he knew, you know. Uh, he would evade us. And I remember, uh, you know, some of my friends, um, Palmer, RV, Sigwa, they were all shot in the head. Uh, sniper fire. Yeah. And... I remember it was sad. It was like, it became like a routine, like every month losing someone where it, it was just like, we get a call on the radio and it's like, everybody go to the battalion aid station and you knew, okay, somebody died. So we go to the battalion aid station, you know, take our gear off and everybody's like, you know, it's like what we call a gaggle fuck. You're just like circle jerk, you know, everybody, the whole battalion's like, what's going on? Who died? Who died? Oh, I don't know. I think his name starts with an S. I think his name starts with an A. And then I'm kind of like going through my mental Rolodex of friends. Like, which one of my friends' last name starts with an A? Which one of them starts with an S or whatever name? And then I would find out like, oh, my buddy, like RB was killed. Sigwell was killed. Mason was killed. Staff Sergeant, uh, Sergeant First Class Nyer, Sergeant Major Watts. Like, oh, no way. You know, it's just like to get that news of like these people that I knew that I'm serving with, that I trained with. Um, they're, they're, they're gone. You know, I remember my buddy Sigwa, uh, Will Sigwa. I knew, you know, we'd go out drinking, partying at back at Fort Bragg at Fayetteville, me and a group of guys from Charlie company. And I remember before he died, I was at the chow hall at a uh, fob Summerall in Beijing, Iraq. And I saw him and it was lunchtime. And then me and my buddy, Jerry walked in we got our lunch and we saw him and some other guys from Charlie company. So we sat with them and we're like joking around and everything. And, um, you know, it was, it was cool. And, and I remember walking out of the chow hall and he lit up a cigarette and we're just still joking around. And we always said something every time, like with my buddies at deployment, we would, we would hug and be like, we would say, I love you. We would say that. And I remember hugging him and I was like, I love you. And then we would say, stay safe. I love you. Stay safe. And like maybe like a smack on the butt cheek or something like that, you know, uh, infantry style. So um, I remember having that meal with him, walking out, he's smoking a cigarette and I'm like, okay, cool. Like this is where we part ways because I got this other, I'm in Bravo company, he's in Charlie company. We got different areas that we're going to, you know, do missions and stuff. And I said, I love you, stay safe. And he's like, I love you too, stay safe. And I believe it was the next day he was killed. And it was just like, I went from having a meal with this, with this dude, you know? And then, uh, he's just gone. And then the next time I saw him, I'm in front of the, the battalion aid station and we're lined up two columns facing each other to the, 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 uh, flight line where the medevac helicopter landed and shut off its engines. Cause we're going to give them excuse me, we're going to give them full honors. And uh, Chaplain Kramer would stand at the end, at the door of the uh, Black Hawk 
and then from the Black Hawk, two lines facing each other to the exit of the uh, the entrance of the aid station. And then I saw um, my buddies carrying a body bag covered with the American flag. And then the body bag was Sigwa's body, you know. And I just ran their salute, and it just seems unreal. And 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 it's like I have to push it to the back of my mind because I'm still in war. Death is real. Guys are dying. Guys I know are dying. And I still have to go out there. Two of my buddies were blown up. They, they were not, they, they didn't die, thank God, but we didn't know if they were going to die or not. Um, one night we're at the Beijing oil refinery. We're doing um, operations out of the refinery, counter IED, counterinsurgency. And um, we had four Humvees. So two Humvees stayed back to watch our little perimeter that we had. And then the other two Humvees of guys, they would go out at night and, and we would sh uh, change night to night because we'd be out there a few days in a row. And they were going to go watch uh, a road to see if they catch anyone putting in roadside bombs. Because And this particular stretch of highway by Highway Tampa, um, outside of the Beijing oil refinery, there was like always an I IEDs in this road. Like it was all full of craters already. It looked like Swiss cheese, you know. And the enemy kept using it because it's a main supply route. So our guys went out there. Our guys went out there. And then I remember uh, staying back. And then Miller and Gerard were on this patrol, two of the, the paratroopers. And before they went on the mission, I was talking to them and we're joking around. And then um, I remember they like, all right, lock and load, load up. They're leaving. They're, they're driving out the perimeter. You know, they're leaving the wire. And I told Gerard, I'm like, I love you, boo. I said, I love you, boo. And he's like, oh, I love you too. And then uh, Miller, he's driving the Humvee and he was like, like, hey, boo, I love you. And I'm like, oh, I love you too, you know, whatever. Uh, that's just, <laughs> I don't know. If you know, you know. It's yeah, just infantry yeah. stuff. And then uh, I remember, like, that first Humvee drove off. And then behind them in the second Humvee was, uh, uh, I remember the passenger seat was my buddy Jerry, Jerry Simchek. And through the bulletproof window, he, like, blew me a kiss. You know, he's just like, and then I was just like, like, bye, boo, like that, like, whatever. And then I, I went to my bunk and um, like an hour later, I hear on the radio, um, they're calling for a medevac. And they say, we got two urgent surgical. Urgent surgical means like if they don't get to the medics within an hour, they're going to die. So they were out on this patrol. And then in, in, the, in the first Humvee with Miller and Gerard. Um, Miller was driving, Gerard was in the back seat in the, behind the passenger and the IED blew up under them and Miller was knocked unconscious. He lost his left tricep, left calf muscle. Gerard lost a chunk of his left foot and he was unconscious and the Humvee rolled to a stop and they're losing blood. My buddy Weiss got out the passenger seat. My buddy Ayala got out of the turret and they were rendering aid. The medic was there. They called a 9-9 medevac. And in our little perimeter in the Beijing oil refinery, we had a landing zone, right? We had an LZ set up. So they were going to haul ass to the LZ. I remember telling my guys, hey, get your shit on. Get your shit on. We put our gear on, lock and load. We go out there to try to help. And they were already coming back. So we move off the road, let them pass, turn around, follow them. And then we, we uh, get back to the refinery they're on stretchers inside of the, the aid station we had, and we're waiting for the helicopter to show up. And I was with Gerard, 
And I remember Gerard was like pale blue and he's shaking. He's going through shock and he's like, I'm cold, I'm cold. And I got a whoopee. It's like an army blanket. And like I, I, I wrapped him in it and I hugged him and I'm rubbing his arms like, hey, you're going to be OK. You're going to be OK. And I could feel he's like just cold and clammy. And I said, you're going to be OK. And then we heard uh, the, the call sign of the helicopter, the medevac helicopter is bad blood five. And we heard bad blood five inbound, bad blood five inbound, like get out to the LZ. So I helped the um, carry Gerard on the stretcher to the uh, LZ and we, we put him down and then the helicopter propellers, I could hear him. And then I, I saw the helicopter. This is all nighttime. It's like three or four in the morning. And then I covered Gerard because the, the helicopter's landing and it's kicking up dirt and sand and I covered his head. And then I could hear Miller, um, Sergeant Weiss was with Miller and then Miller saying like, I love you, I don't want to leave you. And then Gerard is telling me, I love you, I don't want to leave you. Like these guys were wounded, they're losing blood and they didn't want to leave. Like that's the brotherhood. They, they didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay in Iraq with us. And I said, no, it's okay. It's okay. Like, you know, you're going to be okay. And then we load them up to the helicopter and then the, the flight medics like get back, get back. And then they disappeared and they're gone and they survived. But we were so pissed off. We were angry that night or the next day, the next night, rather, we went out to, to, um, patrol the, the refinery at night and we saw some guys stealing fuel. They were stealing gas from the pipes, which is like, you know, it's kind of a crime. We're not cops, you know? We're not cops. It is a crime. I think ROE change where if you see anyone stealing gas or oil from pipelines, you can kill them. Because they were doing that a lot. And uh, Al-Qaeda was doing that, stealing. They were like loading up uh, gasoline trucks, loading them with, with gas, going to C Jordan or Syria, selling it for double the money and funding their, their terrorism. So they changed the ROE. But that night, like we were so angry with like the guys who died, Miller and Gerard getting blown up. When we saw these guys, I mean, we were like ninjas at night. They couldn't see us. We could see them. We got night vision on. We're using hand and arm signals. And I remember this one guy like went to get some fuel jugs and then uh, Sergeant, uh, Sergeant Young just popped out behind a wall, put his hand over his mouth and drug him down. And then I grabbed him and I put my M4 in his chest and I put my hand in his mouth and he's just like terrified. And I went, shh. And like, he didn't move. Then his friends were yelling, ask, you know, yelling, they're probably, you know, yelling for him. And then we snatched them up and then we were like, okay, what are we going to do with them? And then we debated whether or not to execute them. Like we wanted revenge. Like, okay, let's blow their brains out. Let's hide them in a freaking puddle of, of oil. Well, no, it's too shallow. The, there's a bunch of stray dogs. The dogs would eat their bodies. And we're like in a huddle while two lower enlisted guys, we call them Joes. Two Joes are watching these guys, these Iraqis, like four of them, while we're in a huddle deciding how we're going to execute them. Like, okay, well, and if we shoot them, it's too loud. Our lieutenant and captain are going to hear. Crap. We'll use knives. We'll slit their throats. So we all pull out our knives. Like, I want to, I I'm going to slit his throat. Like, we all wanted to get our hands dirty. And then, I don't I think it was me. I was like, but where are we going to hide the bodies? Damn. How about we just beat the shit out of them? 
and we all look at each other. Okay. So we took our gear off, grounded our weapons, we untied them, and we had a brawl. And we beat the crap out of them. And I remember this guy, I broke this bone. It got fat like a golf ball. Um, I was on top of this Iraqi and I was bashing his face and he's unconscious already. He's not even fighting back. But again, like you asked, what was the mindset? We were angry and I was just pounding his face. I could feel I broke his cheekbones and his jaw. He's unconscious. And I just kept hitting him and hitting him. And I thought, I'm going to kill him. And then my bone broke and it hurt so bad. I stopped and I got mad and I got up and I started kicking him. But it hurt so bad that it hurt when I kicked him. So then I just like backed off. And then I remember um, putting my gear on and then we thought they were dead and we like slapped them and slapped them and they woke up, they're breathing and we left them there and just disappeared. The most significant battle that I saw, um, we were at the Beijing oil refinery. We're out there for a few days and it was time for us to head back to the main base to the uh, forward operating base, uh, Summerall. And um, I, it, we had four Humvees. We're heading back to base and I spotted a roadside bomb. It was a, a car tire with wires sticking out. So we um, established a security perimeter on Highway Tampa and we called the Navy EOD. So we were going to wait about an hour. And while we're waiting, I remember getting a call um, from Jerry. He's Bravo 1 2. And he called me and he says, Bravo 1 1, this is Bravo 1 2. And I said, Bravo 1 2, this is Bravo 1 1, send it. He says, get out of your Humvee and look towards the city of Beji, which was behind us. Before I could look, my gunner Tito Taylor on the 50 cal turned around and he said, oh my God. I said, what? And he didn't answer. So I opened the Humvee door and I look out and there's a giant mushroom cloud rising in the city of Beji. And at the time, there were a lot of car bombs. They would pack like 1,000, 2,000 pounds of explosives into vehicles and use them as you know, suicide bombs. So I get, in the, I get in the Humvee and I listen to the radio and I hear the voice of my buddy Sullivan. And he says he was there. And it was the Charlie Company, their, um, the Beji CP or command post. And I hear his voice. He's out of breath. And he says... Beji CP, Beji CP, VBID, VBID, and it got cut off. VBID, Vehicle Born Improvised Explosive Device. It was a car bomb. So then we got the call to go and, and save them. And as we're driving our Humvees, I'm in the lead Humvee, driving towards the city of Beji, towards the mushroom cloud. I could hear on the radio that they got hit by a suicide car bomb. There's an Iraqi police station in front of the American perimeter. It's been wiped out. There's um, 19 Iraqis dead, and now they have 20 or more insurgents, over, and, and they're being overrun. They're going into their perimeter. They're being overrun. They need help. So we're hauling ass towards the mushroom cloud. And I remember um, Marty Lee Holland, what, uh, one of my team leaders. I was a squad leader. He was sitting in the back seat, and he had gone to, like, Bible school. And so, you know, he was a Christian and some guys made fun of him for believing in Jesus and stuff. I remember that. And then uh, he prayed on our way. Like, we're going to a mushroom cloud. We know that they're being overrun. We're going to go there. We got to save our brothers. We don't know what we're getting into. Part of me thought, 
uh, we're probably going to die. Like, this is probably going to be my last combat mission. And then Marty says a prayer out loud. And he says, Lord, protect the men of Charlie Company and protect us in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I remember uh, my driver, Carlson, and my gunner, Taylor, um, they both said like they were atheists and they didn't believe in God. And then I remember both of them said, yes, Jesus, protect us. And then Marty got mad and he's like, don't make fun of Jesus, dude. Don't make fun of Jesus. And they said, no, Marty, we need, we need him. We need protection. And I remember thinking like I had been blaming God for all my friends dying. Like I was letting all my anger out on God. And then that day I thought, well, if I die, I, 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 you know, I want to be right with God. And then I just said a prayer to myself and I said, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And if I die, take me with you. Amen. We get into the city. We start taking fire. I could hear the bullets hitting the armor and the Humvee. I told my gunner to stay low on the 50 cal, watch windows and rooftops. If you see bad guys, smoke them. It looked like a scene of a nuclear bomb. There was a crater the size of a Volkswagen Beetle in front of what used to be an Iraqi police station. The Iraqi police station was rubble. There's like concrete pillars that are still up. And then behind the pillars was a, a two-story building where Charlie Company was. And everyone in that building had concussions from the blast, but the building stayed intact. I remember we parked in front of the crater. I get out. I, I'm standing over the rubble and it's just bodies and body parts. And there's like Iraqi policemen in their uniforms and with blood. Uh, this one guy, he had like a whole, like he had no face. I could see his brains, um, dudes missing arms, like just all this stuff. Then my buddy Sullivan, I heard his voice earlier on the radio and he came out from behind the pillar and he's got a bloody nose. He's got a helmet, a tan shirt, body armor, camel pants, and his M4. And I start walking towards him over the rubble. I was like, dude, are you okay? And he says, I just killed 20 fucking insurgents and I'm going to go play with their bodies later. And I thought, oh, okay, he's good to go. And he says, the 20 insurgents came, we smoked them. Like I could see their bodies around, you know? And he says, look, there's this camera, this big balloon. It's a camera, hyper, whatever, powerful camera. The enemy is coming. We're surrounded. They booby trapped the road to the main base, the FOB. So we're not going to get QRF for another hour. There's no air assets available for like 45 minutes. We're on our own. So conserve ammo. So for the next hour, we fought wave after wave of insurgents. We fired 50 cals, Mark 19s, AT4s. Um, by the time air support showed up, the Apaches and Kiowa helicopters were doing gun runs to the point where they ran out of ammo. And then the Apaches left, but the Kiowa helicopter stayed. And the Kiowas have no doors. So they're flying low. I could see the pilots and co-pilots, you know, and they're like, fly by and do this, you know, like, Woo! and we're like, yeah, because they're like shooting rockets. So then when they ran out of rockets and 50 cal machine gun uh, ammo, they started shooting from the helicopters, like doing like flybys. And they were throwing hand grenades from the helicopter to the enemy. Then when they ran out of, completely ran out of ammo, then they started throwing smoke grenades to mark where the enemy was. And there was this, um, in a courtyard in an apartment complex, there was like a, an enemy casualty collection point. And we got reports that there were like 30 enemy wounded. So the helicopter flew by, 
threw a red smoke grenade to mark it. And then our forward observers called in 120 millimeter mortars and just like decimated them. So in that one hour, it was reported we killed like 200 people. After that, just maybe a month or two later, I'm back. I land at uh, Pope Air Force Base, North Carolina. I get out of the airplane with my buddies. Everything's green. It's trees. It smells different. Feels different. The people are different. It's like more white faces and clean smells, not body odor. Perfume, cologne. Um, it was just like, it was different. And I remember families are there. No one in my family ever came. And I just kind of got my gear and walked outside of this uh, uh, airplane hangar. And I just like sat next to a building on the floor by myself, like isolated. And I didn't even realize it, but it was just too much for me to be around all these people. It was too much activity. Third time in combat. And I was messed up. That night, I turned in, like I turned in my gear and everything. And that night in the barracks, I woke up to the sound of gunfire and mortars. Like I could hear shit in my head. Like I was in a battle. I just like dove off my bed, hit the floor. I was looking for my armor. I was looking for my, my M4. I'm like looking for my night vision. Like my heart's like, <laughs> like pounding out of my chest. I'm like, where the fuck is it? Like, where is this stuff? And I'm on, the, I'm crawling on the floor and I like crawled under my bed, you know, like half of my body's under my bed and I'm like holding onto the bed, like looking at, at the ceiling of the barracks. And then I look out the window and I could see like trees and lights. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm back. I'm in North Carolina. Whoa. That happened several nights. I moved in with my parents. I had my own room. I lived with them for a few months. And then, uh, I just felt like I, like I wasn't done, like I wasn't out. I felt like I was gonna get called back. Like I was just on leave. And I remember living out of my green duffel bags for like two months. I remember waking up and it's like, I gotta go to school. Like I wake up, I went for a run, come back, shower, get ready. Um, got in my truck, drove to school. And as I'm driving to school, I remember it was like, for a while, it was like a, like a song on repeat. I could hear gunfire. I could hear like A-10 Warthogs doing gun runs. I could hear the radio chatter. And, and I'm driving to school. And then I get to school and I'm just hearing this as I'm walking through campus. And I remember seeing some Muslim girls. They, they were like covered up. Like they looked like, like in Iraq, you know, they're all just covered up like the long dresses and my heart was pounding. I was like, why is the enemy here? That's what I thought. Um, I'm watching windows and rooftops. I'm watching hands. I'm sitting in class. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't care to make friends. Um, and then I started drinking a lot, mostly on the weekends. Um, and I thought I was okay. But then I think it was like 
I don't know how long it was, maybe a year after I started noticing more and more symptoms where I'm like driving to, I remember I was driving to school one morning and this is like maybe a year after I've been out and I just had like this, like, it felt like a panic attack or something. I don't know. I heard like a song. I don't know what it was. And I started crying and I started thinking about all my friends who were killed in action because I had put all those memories to the back of my head. I never mourned their losses and I'm crying and I just like, I'm on the freeway and I feel like I'm going to crash. So I, I, I get to the shoulder and I'm breathing and I'm crying and I'm like, stop being a bitch. Stop being a bitch. Stop crying. Stop man up, man the fuck up. Like I'm just like talking to myself and it went away. And then I thought, okay. All right, like I got to go to class. I got to go to class. And that's it. And I didn't tell anybody about it. And I was going to church. And I was going to church and I'd sit in the back at church, usually with a hangover. I kind of felt like, I felt like I owed God something because I'm still alive. Somehow I was never, no IED ever touched me. No bullet ever hit me. Um, I remember a sniper took a shot at me. It hit like right in front of me. Like he missed me. I, you know, I look at it, I, I do believe there are miracles. That's how I see it. It's a miracle that guys to my left and my right had cuts on their face and shrapnel in their armor. And I was right there and I have nothing. You know, these like supernatural moments, I believe. Yeah. And so I was going to church. I grew up going to church. I believe in Jesus Christ. My relationship with him wasn't really good. You know, it was more like a check the box, go to church, sit in the back. And I didn't tell anybody at church about it. I thought I felt alone. I felt alone. I served with a group of dudes who would lay down their life for me. We wore the same uniform. Now there's no more uniforms. I don't know who I can trust. And I don't feel comfortable sharing what's going on in my mind. And on the weekends, I would just drown it with alcohol. And... It wasn't until like three years after being out that I remember. So I wanted to be in law enforcement and the recession hit. So like no law enforcement agencies were hiring. And then I graduated. I used my GI Bill. I got my bachelor's degree from UC Irvine in criminology. And the only job that would hire me, I remember I got hired at Costco to collect shopping carts. And I felt like a failure. And I'm in my early 20s. I'm probably like 25, 26 years old. I think I was like 26. And I remember um, collecting shopping carts. And just at this point in my life, I was having suicidal ideation. I felt alone. I felt hopeless. I felt like I had no purpose in life. I felt like I should have died in combat. That would have been like a noble way to die. Instead of collecting shopping carts and being a loser, I thought, you know, like these were the things in my mind. How do I go from being in a recon team, from being a squad leader, from um, leading men in battle to collecting shopping carts? So I remember one night I decided I was going to kill myself and I had friends that killed themselves. I remember a guy in my squad, Olive, may he rest in peace. Um, he hanged himself like maybe two months after we came back. He hanged himself. We had a guy in Iraq, uh, Rateb, may he rest in peace. He hanged himself in combat in Iraq. So suicide, like it, it's a pattern. And I was, I thought it's time for me to kill myself. I thought the best days of my life are behind me. I'm going to take my own life. 
I had been going to church. I didn't feel comfortable sharing this with anyone at church. I thought that if I shared that I wanted to kill myself, that I wouldn't get help, that I would be told that, you know, I don't belong in church and like, you're not a Christian, get out of here. That I would be shunned, I guess. And so one night, you know, I drank a lot. I was in my studio apartment. I had the blinds closed, lights off. I was in the dark. And I remember I had my 45, my 1911. And I checked and uh, I remember I had hollow points in it. I put it in like, okay, there's hollow points. Uh, I downed the beer and I just like, I was crying because I just felt like this is it. This is how it's going to end. And then I just remember dropping the beer and I put the gun. I remember I had the gun. I just like had it in my eye and I could see the barrel was like as big as my eye. And then uh, I remember um, I just thought like, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. This is how it's going to end. And I felt so hopeless in the dark alone. Like did nobody care. Nobody cares, you know? And then I put the gun in my mouth and then... I was crying and then I remember in my mind, I said, God, if you're there, save me. And then it was quiet. There was no answer. And then uh, I remember thinking like, God doesn't even care about me. Like my life doesn't matter. So then I, I took the safety off and I had both hands and then like it was loud, like it clicked, like just click the metallic click. And then I put my thumb on the trigger and then I was like, all right, like I have a gun in my mouth, tears. And I said like, this, this is it. Like, I'm just going to just start squeezing and it's going to just, I won't feel anything, you know, I'm not going to feel anything. I'm just going to squeeze and then it's just going to be over. And I remember saying again, and in my mind, like with a gun in my mouth, saying in my mind, I said, God, if you're there, save me. Nothing. I put my thumb on the trigger and then I heard, boom, and I let go of the gun, it fell. And then I started checking my head and I'm like, there's no blood. And I'm checking my clothes, checking the floor, like there's no blood. And then uh, I looked to my right in my studio apartment. It was my bed, my TV, my couch that I'm on. And then to my right over here would be my, my, my little office desk computer. And I had a Bible on there and it was a thick Bible because it had like some like references in the back and stuff. And uh, it just flew off the desk. It hit the floor. That was the, the, the bang that I heard. And I remember just falling on my knees in tears and I asked God for forgiveness. And I just said, God, forgive me, forgive me. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, I, I don't know. It was just this, this moment where it's like, did that just really happen? I, I almost took my own life. And then the next day, uh, my buddy Luis, Luis España, we went to high school together. He served in the army and now he was working for the VA. And he had been reaching out to me for a while. And he's like, dude, you need help. You need help. I kept telling me. And I was like, no, I don't need help. That's stuff's for pussies. I, I, I did what I was, what I signed up to do. I fought. I did what I was trained to do. I don't need help. So he called me again and he's like, dude, you need help. So I was like, all right. So he set up appointments for me. And then I went to East LA to the um, East LA uh, vet center to see a clinical social worker. His name's Bob Weems. And 
they had me fill this thing out. It's like a questionnaire. And it was like, um, have you seen combat? Yes. Did you lose friends? Yes. Well, they asked questions and I lied. I lied. Like, yes, I've been in combat. Yes, I lost friends. Did you ever shoot anyone? No. Have you attempted suicide? No. How often do you drink alcohol? Yes. How many drinks do you have? Like two, two on a weekend? No. I mean, it just went on and on and I lied. And then I remember Bob calls me in his office. I go in and he has these, the, te the my test that I took or the survey, whatever it is. And he says, based on your answers, you don't need our help. And I was like in his office, door closed, just me and him. And, and you know, he's like closer to me than you are. And he says, you know, based on your answers, you don't need our help. And I said, good. Can I leave? And he's like, no. He goes, I have a copy of your DD-214. It says here, you were airborne infantry, went to ranger school. You have a combat infantryman badge. You've been to Iraq, Afghanistan and Iraq, because it says like the times of deployment. And I have, he saw my ribbons, like, you know, global war on terror, like all that stuff, Afghanistan service campaign, Iraq, whatever. He says, I think you're bullshitting me. And then he told me, I'm here to help you. If you tell me the truth, I can help you. But I can't help you if you don't tell me the truth. And I was afraid of being vulnerable. I was afraid of admitting that I freaking had a gun in my mouth like a few days ago. So I looked at the door and I looked at him and I thought, okay, do I get up and walk out right now? Or do I just like see where this goes? I said, all right, what do you want to know? He says, did you serve in combat? Yes. Did you lose friends? Yes. Have you thought about killing yourself? Yes. Have you attempted suicide? Yes. Do you want to kill yourself now? No. Do you wish you were dead? Yes. Do you drink alcohol? Yes. How many drinks did you have Friday? 36. With who? Alone. Saturday? The same. With who? Alone. He said, you need help. And I broke down in tears. And one of the moments I had of healing, of opening up is he asked me if I believed in God. And I said, yes. He says, what religion? I said, I'm a Christian. He says, so you believe that in Jesus Christ? And I said, yes. He said, why did Christ die on the cross? And I said, for my sins. And he said, is there anything you've done in your life that he cannot forgive? And I started crying. And I said, no. And he said, why don't you just pray right now? And he wasn't even a believer. Like he was, a, I think he was Jewish, but he's just meeting me where I am. And he says, I'll just sit here quietly and I want to, I just want to allow you to pray to Jesus right now. And I started crying and I just said, forgive me for my sins. I started seeing him twice a week for almost a year. And I confessed everything. I processed the loss of my friends. I made it a goal to visit their tombstones. And then finally, uh, I went to seminary and I studied, um, uh, I have a master's degree, Master of Divinity degree from Biola University in pastoral care and counseling. Wow. And I made it a point to help veterans. And I've worked at nonprofits helping vets. And that led me to write my book, um, The Shadow of Death. And I wrote this book, The Shadow of Death, because Psalm 23 is, Though I walk through the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
So when I look back at my life and I see the darkest points of my life, walking in that shadow of death, God was with me the whole time. And now I get to turn around and help veterans. And I've made it my mission to do that. So this nonprofit I work for is called Step Forward Academy. And the whole goal is like uh, mentorship through coaching. So we have um, people coming out of difficult circumstances because we work with a lot of like back to work nonprofits where people find a job, but they're making minimum wage and we want to help them find a career. So we have a curriculum to help them boost up their LinkedIn, their LinkedIn, their resumes. Um, and we have mentors and coaches available. And this is all free of charge. It's a nonprofit. It's at no cost to our clients. And we help, um, we help anyone who needs help with finding a career, find a career. Um, I focus on the veteran side. I'm the veterans outreach director for Step Forward Academy. So I want to get guys who are coming out of the military. Um, I remember when I was getting out, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a, I kind of thought, well, I was in the infantry in the army. So maybe, you know, the closest thing to that, to that out here is being a cop, but I was wrong. Um, you know, there, there's now I do other things that I never thought I would do. Now I'm helping veterans. Now I'm a counselor, a case manager. And, uh, I would not have, uh, came to, to doing what I do now if it wasn't for the coaches and the, the mentors along the way. So coaching and mentorship goes a long way. And I know when I was getting out, I could have really used that immediately. So I want to help military personnel transition to civilian life. And then also I want to help veterans trying to figure out, you know, what is my calling? What is my purpose? Because a lot of the times, like, I know when I thought about suicide, I, I felt like I had no purpose in life. But the truth is that you do. And we can help you find that purpose. And we can help you get connected with a community to get support, to accomplish your goals, to find that purpose. And it's at no cost. Stepforwardacademy.org. Check it out. To all the families of um, all the vets who are going to see this, to if they, you know, you've lost someone, it wasn't in vain. We fought for each other. You know, ultimately we, we fought for each other. And um, I am so proud that I got to serve with these men and women who were willing to lay down their lives for me. There's no other love. There's no love greater than that. And also to all the vets watching, if, if you're struggling, there is hope. There is hope. Seek community. Go and physically go to the VA and tell them you need help. Find your nearest church. Tell them you need help. You'll be surprised at the healing you find. When you confess that you need help and you're met with love and support, it's like this burden that's lifted, you know, taking your own life. Imagine it. I, like, I, I think if I would have taken my own, my own life, I wouldn't have written this book. I wouldn't have been there to speak to so many veterans and, and, and be there for them. Think about how much each veteran, if you're thinking about killing yourself, think about how valuable your life is. And if you change your life around, think about the amazing testimony you will have that you can help other vets. Stay positive, stay encouraged. Thanks, Fernando. Appreciate you taking a seat, brother. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. That make my mind scared Hold me hostage and they don't fight fair Who gon' pray for me and wipe on my tears Who gon' save me if you not right here Move this darkness and make my sight clear Take me away cause I don't like here Ghost of my past, they feeling the night air Wake me up, I'm trapped in my nightmares